Good morning. In your bulletin, uh, it it tells you about uh, the dear folks that, uh, boy, the Lord has gifted us with, and uh, we're going to hear some of the stories of what God has done to capture their hearts and bring them into a relationship as they formally unite with this local church Uh, tonight. uh, Jimmy Phillips, however, he will be working tonight. And since uh, there's not much good to talk about the Dodgers... <laughs> Why don't you capture what God's done in your own heart and life? Good morning. Uh, my name is Jimmy Phillips. Most of you guys have known my wife and family, Sarah over there, and then the Glover family who was born and raised here. Um, I have been blessed by God through my whole life. Um, my earliest memory is VBS and um, my teacher telling me that I was a sinner and that Jesus came to the earth, lived a perfect life, uh, died for my sins, and was buried and rose again. And I, first memory is praying to have God come into my heart. Um, and then God's great, and he, I still was a normal kid. I had dreams of being rich, having a fast car, a beautiful wife, and a family. I'm two for four on that right now. <laughs> um, and it was interesting because my dad made a bunch of money when I was around 10 or so, in the stock market when the internet craze happened, and I watched him, a man who loved the Lord, just become miserable. Uh, he had all of his dreams. He had a beautiful wife, great family. We had a pool, uh, and he bought a brand new car, and it was great. And then I watched him, as the stock market did this, his moods did this, because uh, money became something that he was totally focused on. And it kind of broke me because I saw my dreams go away because I knew that that wouldn't bring happiness. Um, and between, like, then and about 10th grade, I was just miserable. I was like, what's the point? Why would I even work on, like, who cares about school? Um, and then went to uh, Hume Lake Summer Camp, and uh, the preacher spoke on Matthew 16, 24, which is, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And being born and raised in a great church and having great parents, I'm sure I've heard that verse a hundred times, but it never hit me. Until then, and I was always concerned if I truly gave my whole life to Christ, he would make me something terrible like a missionary or a pastor. Um, I remember that night just saying, whatever you want, God, I'll do it. Um, and it was amazing that it transformed. I hated school before then, which I still don't like school, but it became a ministry opportunity for me uh, to go. Even though it was a Christian school, there were so many kids that didn't know the Lord. And um, work became something that it was a time to where I could share Christ with others around me. Um, And God's been good. He's blessed me. I've been involved in the junior high ministry at my church, uh, Awana, and now I'm with Amplify with the college kids here, and it's been great. And I want to thank all of you who are involved in indirectly in my life by shepherding my wife and uh, my kids. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, brother. So we'll hear the rest of them share this evening and... uh... It doesn't get any better than bragging about what God's done in our life. It just doesn't get any better. And uh, thankfully, He's not done yet, right? How do we know that? Because we're still here? Yeah. Uh, We will be perfect only when we get to heaven. And what a glorious day that will be. So thank you, Jimmy. Thank you, Sarah, for finding him. So, why don't you grab uh, a copy of the Scriptures or something, uh, electronic or otherwise, and turn over to the New Testament book, Philippians, 
this is a letter that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote to a church uh, in a city called Philippi. <clears throat> it was a city in which uh, they had some spiritual understandings and some, uh, some, some people there seeking after God, but it was the Apostle Paul who brought the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to that city and to the people of that city. And because God was at work there, there was people who put their faith and trust in Christ and became followers of God. And when that happens, then they become a, a, a local church together. And, uh, and so Paul, some years later, is sitting in a prison cell in Rome, and he writes this letter back to those believers in that city. We've gone through the first three chapters thus far, and we come to chapter four now. And when we get to chapter four, what we're going to find is this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. In fact, this is, there's probably tons of verses that many of us have memorized out of this fourth chapter because it really is where the rubber meets the road. Um, It's something that Paul has been working up to uh, and laying a foundation for in so many different ways of attitudes and beliefs and et cetera, et cetera, so that, so that what we're going to read in this chapter is, is, the, is the behavior, it's the outcome, it's what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ in relationship with each other, uh, concerning our own hearts and worry, what it means to support other people to get the gospel out, uh, of whom Paul was a grateful recipient. So all of those different things. Last week we dealt with the last uh, few verses of chapter 3, and you'll notice that uh, chapter 4 verse 1 begins with the word therefore. And, uh, and so it's very tightly linked with those previous verses. Uh, in other words, here's a conclusion based upon, or here's an application based upon the previous verses. So let, let me just remind us of what we said about those verses 17 through 21 two weeks ago. There are three, in the English translation, there are three W words in 17 through 21 that capture the point of those verses. One is concerning our walk, that we would have a walk as brothers and sisters where we are being discipled and being made disciples, where we're making disciples of other people, where we're finding people who are more like Jesus in a particular area than we are, and we become like that, we grow like that, but we are also helping other people to follow the Lord in areas where He has worked in our own heart, and we're making disciples of other people. That is just the warp and woof of the local church. It really is. And uh, Tuesday night, we got to hear the testimonies of those who will be joining tonight. Uh, It's one of our constitutional requirements that at least two of our elders hear testimonies. We want to make sure that people don't think they're going to heaven because they join a church. The church is to be made up of those people who are already going to heaven, who already know Christ. And, uh, and, And there's just some neat stuff that happened there. You're going to hear a lot of it tonight. But um, Sarah actually shared the impact that Andy Davies had upon her life as she would come with her dad early in the morning to set up sound. And being a little girl, that wasn't particularly interesting. And so Andy would be setting up, she was our children's director at the time, we'd be setting up over in the other building. Sarah would go over and tag along and help. 
But Sarah just expressed her gratefulness for Andy's discipleship during that. That's just the local church. And Rebecca Howell also shared about being a VBS and Ken Dean, uh, talking about the attributes of God and how it just caught her freshly about the greatness and the grandness of who God is. That's just the warp and woof of walking with Christ in a local church, is uh, you go in to give, you go in to make disciples, and man, you end up getting way more than you could ever give. Now, if you just come in to get, that's not the Christian way. Uh, The Christian way, give, and you shall what? Receive. Press down many times. And, uh, and so that's just the walk that it talks about there. And then it talks about a weeping. Uh, and, and part of being a follower of Jesus is you weep over those who do not know Christ and those who are not walking with Christ. It's just part of what comes with being a follower of Christ that your heart breaks for those who are separated from Christ or those who are choosing to go down a pathway of self-destruction apart from Christ. And the last W is found down there, and that is we eagerly wait, verse 20. We eagerly wait for a Savior who one day is going to uh, exert and use His authority to change this old body into a glorious body. And so that is what those f- verses were. So let's read actually beginning in 17. Let's go all the way down through verse 3. And then we're going to concentrate on the first three verses of chapter 4. So follow along as I read. This is the word of the living Lord. Verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and crown. In this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray together. Well, Spirit of God, even as you moved upon the Apostle Paul to write these words to the church at Philippi 2,000 years ago, we pray that you would move upon me, that you would move upon us, and that you would cause these words to be living, and that they would accomplish the very purpose for which you intend them in our lives collectively and in our lives individually. So we wait upon you for that work, and it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. 
And so I've entitled this, Our Citizenship is in Heaven. That comes out of verse 20 there. And of course, the theme of the whole book is, Our Lord is Christ Jesus. We get that out of verse 1, where Paul says, He and Timothy are bond slaves of Christ Jesus. And that, that would make Him the Lord or the Master. And what we're going to see as we begin to go through chapter 4 is that for those who are citizens of heaven, with the Lord Jesus Christ as our Master, not only is it just becoming a citizen of a particular kingdom, in this case, the kingdom of God, but part of what happens in all of that is not only do you, do you leave the kingdom of Satan and you come into the kingdom of God and you forsake the kingdom of Satan, you forsake all other allegiances to other kingdoms and you become a citizen of the kingdom of God, but part of what happens is as you're a citizen, you become more like your king. He doesn't just transfer you into His kingdom, He transforms you to be like Him. And that's one of the uniquenesses of the Christian life, is that it's not by works of righteousness which we do, but it is by His grace. And, and, and there's this transformational change that takes place. And, and that's what's going to be emphasized in all of chapter 4. But in this first part, and in verse 1 in particular, I think we begin by just seeing what is the heart, what is the heart of citizens for each other? Uh, Paul is a preeminent example of the heart of one citizen for other citizens. We've seen it pop up a lot in this book, but just look at verse 1. In fact, let me just ask you, read verse 1 and tell me what strikes you about verse 1. What strikes you about that verse? Yeah, his love. I mean, he just stacks up words, doesn't he, to show his affection, his heart for the Philippian believers. He uses five different terms to express his great affection and respect. And, uh, well, let's just go through the terms. One of them is repeated twice. It depends on your translation, but uh, uh, at the beginning in the New American Standard, it says, my beloved, and at the end, it, he wraps it up by saying, my beloved. Now, beloved is the word agape. It's that word for sacrificial love. It is that word um, that emphasizes that, and then uh, the beloved is being in the beloved. But notice Paul just doesn't call them beloved. He does in many places, but not here. What does he add to it? My beloved. My beloved. And so those are kind of the bookends on what he says here, and he goes on to call them his brethren. Now, brethren would be men and women, and the word brethren emphasizes what? It emphasizes that we have a common father. We have a common father that in Romans 8, uh, Paul says that when we got saved, he puts the spirit of adoption in our hearts, out of which we cry out, Abba, Father. And as you look around at people around you, you recognize that we are brothers and sisters in this family. And so, this is emphasizing that what is most significant is not the different roles that are played within the church. Paul isn't saying, I'm the apostle. Iodia, Syntica, Clement, you had a major role 
in helping this church come together and, and forming it and, and doing all of that. Epaphroditus, you brought this letter to me, or you came to me, you're taking this letter back. This term just does away with all the emphasis on roles and says what we have in common, most importantly, is we all have a common father. It is God who is our father. The next thing he says is, whom I long to see. Now, I suppose in a sarcastic way, we could just say, well, that's because he's sitting in prison. But no, Paul, I mean, it oozes out of all of his letters. He's always saying, I want to come see you. I want to be with you. And here's how he says it here, whom I long to see. Paul was convinced that he was a better person in the presence of other believers. He just recognized the reality that being around other believers was what was good for him. Certainly he had a lot to offer them, but he didn't long to see them just to teach them or something else. He just longed to be with other believers. And, uh, of course, knowing that we were going to go through this, I was sitting in the classes this morning, and I was just reminded of how much I enjoy being with believers in every context. Now, remember, Paul had a history of putting these people in prison and oversaw the murder of at least one. I mean, this is a radical change, right? It was a radical change for me. I can remember growing up and stuff. I didn't really want to go to church. But man, once I became a citizen of heaven, once that work took place in my life, I liked being with other believers. People didn't tell me, well, you have to be there Wednesday night, you have to be there Sunday morning. They didn't have to tell me that. I wanted to be there. Why? Because I was a better person because of it. And, and so I don't come out of obligation. Thankfully, I wasn't a pastor early on. I'd show up stinky in my uniform. I longed to be with other believers. That's the heart of a citizen of heaven for other citizens of heaven. And we see it just pulsing here in the apostle's heart. And then he lumps these two things together. He says, my joy and crown. He calls the Philippian believers his joy and his crown. Now, does that mean he didn't ever get irritated with them? No, just say no. I mean, they were people just like he was, just like we are. What does he mean, and why does he call the believers at Philippi his joy and crown? Well, this is another thing that changes when a person becomes a citizen of heaven. When a person becomes a citizen of heaven, what they find joy in changes. It changes to other people and helping them come to know Christ and to grow in Christ. That becomes the great joy of their hearts. They get weaned off of the temporal things of this world, and to some extent, they can live in anything circumstantially. The joy becomes what is going on in the people's lives around me. 
And as Paul thought about the Philippians, I'm sure he could remember the day he came into Philippi, he shared the gospel, and the, and the months <coughs> and the years that he spent there, and watching people put their faith and trust in Christ, watching people grow in Christ, that, he says, is his joy. That is my joy. The Apostle John put it this way in 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And those weren't biological children, those are spiritual children. Or, or just taking what we looked at last week from John 15, where as we as branches are into the vine and the life of the Lord Jesus flows into our life, What brings Jesus joy now brings us joy. What brings Jesus joy? That people will turn to Him as their Lord and Savior and live forever. And so it's just one of these changes that God brings about in a citizen of heaven's life. But He also says, not only are you my joy, but you are my crown. Now, in the Bible, there are two different words that describe two different crowns. Here's the picture of those two crowns. One is a laurel wreath crown. One is one that's made up of bay leaves or olives leaves or whatever it might be. The other one is the the crown that a king or a ruler or the Caesar in Paul's day would wear. Uh, The one one that the ruler would wear, the Greek word is diadem. So you may recognize that from some songs we sing. Uh, That's the one that represents the authority of the one who is in charge. Uh, The word that is used here is the one of the laurel wreath. And and there's a few ways that this was used in the culture of their day. It was used at weddings. And in fact, I asked George Pappas this morning, because he's Greek, uh, and this is used in Greek weddings today. I said, so tell me about this. I didn't even realize this until I started studying this passage. And he said, well, you know, Carol and I eloped, so we didn't do this. But he says, my brother had a Greek wedding. And there are two laurel reefs. They can look a lot of different ways. But after you say your vows to each other, these wreaths are brought up and they're tied together, and they are placed on the bride and the groom's heads, and then actually they're switched three times. And here's what the one officiating says. They say, um, let me find my place here. Uh, They name the the servant of God, and they put the groom's name in there, is crowned unto the handmaiden of God, and they put the bride's name in, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. And then to to the bride, it says, the handmaiden of God, and they put her name, is crowned unto the servant of God, the groom's name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then they say, O Lord our God, crown them with glory and honor. And so this would have been a regular thing in weddings in Philippi during that day. Uh, some, of the, some of the churches say that the reason that they wear that is a reminder of now that this is under the blessing of God and of a reminder of the wreath that they, that they believe that we're going to wear in heaven for all of eternity. 
And so it was a tradition that they shared. Probably more commonly was the use of this wreath in athletic events. And so here you have, it was given to those who competed according to the rules and who won the race. And the other ones of the Boston Marathon, actually, in 1983. Uh, And they evidently gave them then. Do they do it now? Does anybody know? They'd still give the laurel wreath at the Boston Marathon? They do. Okay, wherever that voice is. There you are. Did you run in that? You're working on it. I'm not even working on it. (laughs) And so it is still given. And it's, it's a reminder of competing in a race according to the rules and of having finished and won the race. And so that's probably the picture here. But Paul says, you are my crown. You are my crown. You're the pride. You're the reason I live this life. You are the reward at the end of the day. You, Philippians, are my crown. 1 Thessalonians, he says something similar to them. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ as His coming? And what does he say? Does he say, I've lived a moral life? No, that's important, and that's part of the equation, but that's not the end. Does he say, I've trusted Jesus as my Savior? Well, that's the beginning, but that's not the whole point of the thing, right? There's, there's this grand point and goal, and he says, when I meet the Lord Jesus at His coming, my hope, my joy, my crown, my boasting, it's going to be the people that God allowed me to have a part in their life spiritually. Why? Because that's the heart of the Lord Jesus. And so citizens pick up this heart. They pick up this heart And so, Paul says with great affection and describes them, and there is one command in there, and a very strong exhortation, and it's wrapped right there in the middle there. Whoops. Well, I must have gotten these in the wrong order. But it's right there. Let me just tell you. Stand firm in the Lord, verse verse 1 there. That is the command. And notice it doesn't come out of a position of authority here. It comes out of a sense of affection. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And so, um, so that's the heart of believers towards other citizens, the heart of one citizen for other citizens. Now, we all know in verses 2 and 3 are not going to come as any surprise Although it may be a surprise that Paul actually addresses it in such a public way. But guess what? There are going to be times where one of us as a citizen has a problem with another person who's a citizen, and something happens to put some distance in that relationship, and we cannot say verse 1 about that person. Can you imagine that happening? Can you imagine that happening? I mean, if you can't, well, you can. We've all been there, right? There's just things that come up that all of a sudden put us at odds. I mean, it happens within families. And so what Paul does here is he, he goes right after it, and here is where I want to say 
He helps us to know how to heal disagreements among citizens. When the disagreements pop up, how do we heal those disagreements? Now, there's a lot of stuff that is written and said about these two verses. Let me just tell you what I think is clear here. One is that, that Iodia and Syntica, there's two names if you're having kids, by the way. <laughs> That'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? Uh, here's what we know. There were fellow workers who had labored to get the gospel to others. He makes that very clear in verse 3, doesn't he? They had struggled with the Apostle Paul to get the gospel out um, together with Clement, whoever he was. And so they, they, they were faithful lady workers in getting the gospel out. What else do we know? We also know they're going to heaven. We know that whatever has come between those two ladies... Paul still says they're Christians. And this is amazing because Paul hardly ever says this. He almost always gives indicators to know whether we're a Christian or not. But here he flat out says at the end of verse 3, whose names are in the book of life. Now, the book of life is something that's used from the Old Testament into the, all the way into the book of Revelation. And it's based upon the common practice in their day and in our day that in every city there is a registry of who is living. And so when someone is born, their name is written in there. When they die, their name is erased from the book of life. It's true today, isn't it? Except I think Orange County keeps our records uh, for here. And so it's, it's written upon that as a metaphor for, for God having a book of life of the names of the people who, who are going to, who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, and therefore are going to heaven. And here he affirms that these two ladies are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They really have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They are going to heaven. You'll get to meet them if you're going to heaven, and you can find out more about this account then, if they want to talk about it. The reality is, though, they were at odds with each other. Something had come up between them in their relationship. Uh, what? We do not know. But here's some things that I think we can surmise from this. One is that it was public knowledge. Everybody seemed to know. Word got to Paul in Rome thousands of miles away about them being at odds with each other, and Paul addresses it publicly. And you wouldn't address something publicly unless it was publicly known. The second thing that I think we can know from this is that whatever was the disagreement, it was not a moral sin issue, and it wasn't a big theological difference. Why would we say that? Because if it's a moral sin issue in those terms, Paul deals with moral sin issues in very clear terms. He names the sin and he calls for repentance. He doesn't say, get along. If it's theological error, he goes after that with an equal vengeance. 
And where people are in theological error, major theological error, he would even question whether they really know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And here, what he's going to encourage them to do is to live in harmony in the Lord. It is possible that grumbling was involved. If we go back to chapter 2 and verse 14, and say there's just some kind of grumbling or disputing going on here. But we do not know what the issue was, even though I think we can get an idea of, of the nature of whatever was between them. Now, the great beauty about this passage is that uh, we learn some important things about life as citizens of heaven amongst each other, and we also get direction on how to heal these rifts when they take place. And so, here's a, let me just give you some uh, things here that I think uh, we learned from this passage. Being at odds with another person who's a believer, another person in the church, it, it is going to happen to Jesus' followers. It's going to happen. Let me say it again. It's going to happen. I mean, here are two very faithful women who had struggled to get the gospel out, had probably been instrumental in the church at Philippi's its, its existence. These were not cantankerous old women who just wanted the church to revolve around them. I mean, they had struggled to get the gospel out to help people come to Christ and to form the church. And if it can happen to ladies like that, guess what? It can happen to any one of us. Second thing I think we learn is that when we end up at odds, it doesn't erase the previous gospel works. Paul highlights there's struggle in the gospel. And as a part of that, it doesn't mean they're not going to heaven. Their names are in the book of life. But it also must be dealt with. It also needs to be healed because such being at odds is not consistent with who the Lord Jesus is as our Master and as our Lord. It's not consistent with the work of the Spirit that always brings unity. And so it must be dealt with. And I think here we have some very clear ways that it describes how to deal with this. Notice that he says, first of all, you each must own your own sin. Healing comes when each one owns their own part. Look at verse 2. He says, I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche. It's interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't just say, I urge Eodia and Syntyche. What does he say? I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche. He gives exactly the same direction to both of them. Because you know human nature, don't you? If your name was placed first and the other one was placed second, what's the second one going to do? Say it's primarily your fault. I mean, the garden hasn't changed. We still point our fingers at somebody else, right? And so he says, you each need to own your part in this deal. And isn't that always the case? 
I mean, I still remember so clearly in my time in North Carolina when a lot of things happened. And uh, anyway, a lot of things happened. It was obvious that the people who had sued us were primarily in violation of Scripture, and I got real proud about it. And I can remember God saying, it doesn't make any difference if you're 0.01% wrong, and there are 99. What is that? 99% wrong. You need to deal with your 0.01%. That's your issue between you and me. Do not worry about who's most wrong. Worry about your wrong. I said, that's the hard part about the Christian life. That's the beauty about the Christian life. We're only fully responsible for our own self before the Lord. And so he urges each one of them to own their own part. In this case, evidently, they were unwilling to do that. Isn't pride a horrible thing? And so what does he do? When the individuals will not own their own part, then you get help from others. Paul's helping them. He is writing this in a letter as a spiritual parent thousands of miles away. Why? To embarrass them? No, to help them. To help them. And notice how he encourages even others there. Verse 3, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women. Help these women. Now, it's a little bit of a tricky thing there. The word companion is actually the word yoke fellow. Some people believe it may be actually a proper name. And that what he's saying is there is somebody in your midst, this is his name, and he is truly a yoke fellow. He has an ability to help people who are in disagreements come together in the yoke again under Christ. And so Paul calls for the help of the people there in the body to help these two women resolve whatever their differences might be. And just as there was an exhortation in verse 1, there is an exhortation to them in verse 2, which basically says to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, some of your translations translate the word differently, and so I want to track this word down a little bit. The word is, is literally, uh, it's the word that we've seen have this attitude or have this mind. But, but here the emphasis is come to agreement in your attitude and in your thinking. Let me show you some of the places it, that it's used. Go back up to chapter 3, verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect have this attitude, that's our word, have this attitude, have this mind. Most significantly is chapter 2, where Paul is, well, look at verse 2. He says, make my joy complete by being of the what? Same mind. That's our word. Same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, same word, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Something had come up between Eodia and Syntyche where they were not doing this, 
where they were both convinced that whatever their position was on something, a methodology or something else, they were both right. And Paul says it's selfishness, it's empty conceit. And they needed to humble themselves. And of course, verse 4, or uh, I'm sorry, verse 5, have this attitude, that's our same word, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who let go of a lot of things that were rightfully His for the sake of God's calling upon His life. And so, Paul calls them to live in harmony. It's amazing the things that get in the way of relationships within very mature believers that prevent the gospel going to the extent that God wants it to go. And Paul says it needs to be dealt with. He puts it in a letter. It is read publicly in the church at Philippi. And so, just to sum up this morning, our citizenship is in heaven, and that means that we live under our Lord, who is Christ Jesus. And we are to stand firm in the Lord, having this heart for each other of saying, you're my beloved. You're my brothers and sisters. I like being with you. Some of you are my joy and crown because I've had a place in your spiritual walk. And I just encourage you, keep standing firm in the Lord. And for those of you that have something that has come between you and another citizen of heaven, and you may not think it's a big deal because it's not a clear moral issue that's listed in the Scripture, it's not a clear doctrinal issue that's addressed in the Scripture, and you might not think it's a big deal, it's a big deal. It's not like the Lord Jesus. It's not what he died for so that his citizens would live in harmony. Live in harmony in the Lord. So this morning, do you know Christ as your Lord and Master? Are you a citizen of heaven? And if not, that's the first step of coming to the point of recognizing that you need to become a citizen of heaven by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you are a citizen of heaven, is this your heart towards other citizens? Are you living in harmony with all other citizens as best you know? Why don't you stand with me, please, and let's pray. Spirit of God, we ask you to bring these words and make them applicable to each of our hearts. We're grateful for whatever you have done there for your great honor and glory. Now, Spirit of God, I pray that you would bring up anybody, a fellow citizen, where we don't have this heart for them because something has come up. And Lord, I thank you that you've given us a way to deal with that to have the very attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ and to let the Spirit of God restore the unity that He brings amongst everyone of His children. 
And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.